listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Hey, welcome back to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect, where I like to be. Why? Well, because there's pharmacists out there talking about some of the most novel, forward-thinking, innovative treatment programs and plans and protocols that are put together with physician pharmacist teams and pharmacists are leading in the um, in the treatments moving forward today is a special conversation about the treatment of duchenne muscular dystrophy we're going to be doing some updates and disease modification mentioning some of the drugs and what do you know we have two shining stars and examples of excellence as pharmacists in, in in working in pharmacy and pharmacy care Dr. Jessica Kerr, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. This is podcast designed for pharmacists by pharmacists. Jessica, how are you today? Great. I'm doing well. How are you, Todd? Doing great. I want you to introduce our special guest and um, dig into this extremely interesting topic. And um, I'm going to sit back and listen in and learn. So thank you so much for being here. All right. So thank you for the introduction. And I am excited to be here with um, Dr. Hickman today to discuss Duchenne's muscular dystrophy in a way that will help our listeners understand the pathophysiology and clinical presentation of Duchenne muscular dystrophy to better understand the newest disease modifying therapies that are currently available and definitely in the pipeline. Um, Just for ease of the podcast, I think it would be good for us to understand we're going to go back and forth between the abbreviation of DMD or Duchenne muscular dystrophy to identify the disease state. Um, I really, I must admit that prior to learning of the newer therapies used and even management of patients with DMD, I didn't really know was out there um, in regards to therapies and how the disease management has evolved. So I have Dr. Amanda Hickman with us today. Um, She's gonna share her enthusiasm about the condition and provide more evidence-based insight on the newer agents that are available um, that can possibly provide more hope for patients and family members. Um, Dr. Hickman, if you could just kind of give us your own little bio to let us know where your expertise is coming with Duchesne's. Hey, Jess, absolutely. It's great to see you today. And I am a neuro nerd. Uh, let's just introduce there. So uh, basically, since I graduated pharmacy school, I've been working with neuro patients. And so with my current role as the uh, central neuropharmacist with Trellis Rx, it is uh, my responsibility to make sure that we are up to date on all things uh, neuro. And so Duchenne's muscular dystrophy falls under my disease states of passion because of its movement disorder classification. Yeah, so let's, you know, kind of sit and talk about um, what Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is 
um, and share with our listeners on how it may progress in the realms of a patient's lifespan. Absolutely. So I'd first like all of us to picture a happy, happy family. They are welcoming a brand new little baby boy into their lives. And so we're thrilled to get through the first few months. A little boy is developing. He's growing. Uh, We're just planning wonderful futures for this little man. And then family starts to notice, you know what, he seems to have a little bit of difficulty walking, a little bit of a late bloomer, maybe, Uh, you know, with babies, they always progress on their own time. So an eye is kept on that. However, what we don't know is inside little baby boy, he has a mutation uh, in his genes that is leading to Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And with this mutation, it's causing his muscles to start getting broken down. So he's not developing as fast as he needs to. He doesn't have the mobility that he should at certain uh, stages of his development. So probably about at two, three, maybe even 18 months as early as that, uh, pediatrician starting to get concerned. And so we start running tests. As we're running tests, we realize that his creatine kinase is elevated. He may start having some elevated uh, ASTs and ALTs for liver function. And the suspicion is coming, is this Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So what we're finding with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is that his dystrophin, which is a part of the muscle complex, uh, kind of think of this as the supports to a bridge. These supports are damaged or they're not there anymore. So the bridge cannot hold anything. So he is, as we've been mentioning, a late walker, he maybe doesn't have a very stable run. Uh, he can't really get up. He kind of has to use his hands a lot to get around in places. We've run those labs. Uh, we may even do genetic testing uh, and find that he does have the Duchenne's mutation leading to the diagnosis of Duchenne's. This typically is found at about two to three years of age, and it, but it is a rare condition. Uh, If we're thinking worldwide, picture about 100,000 little baby boys, about seven of those are going to be diagnosed with Duchenne's. And when we're looking at the U.S. in particular, data is still a little bit scarce, but we're going to say picture 10,000 little baby boys, about 1.3 of those are going to be diagnosed with Duchenne's. And we're talking a lot about little baby boys. Little baby girls could also get uh, this mutation as well, but this is an X-linked mutation. So with girls having two X genes, that means they have something they can rely on to keep those muscles functioning the way they're supposed to. So it's not as common in girls. And if it does show up, a lot of times it's a more mild version of muscular dystrophy. And this could be called Becker's muscular dystrophy. So that life expectancy can be a little bit better with those. Uh, We could potentially see this uh, occurring in a more Hispanic uh, heritage. And uh, we're still learning along the way, of course, the prevalence of this because we are learning more and more about this disease state and getting treatments for it now. So we're looking for it more because there is a lot of hope out there. That's great. You 
talked a little bit, um, you know, with the pathophysiology, can you go a little bit more into the role of dystrophin um, with this particular disease state? Because I think it really impacts with what we're looking at for our newer therapies. Absolutely. It is the target of our newer therapies. And that's primarily because the gene that creates the dystrophin, which is actually a really big uh, protein when it comes to the creation of proteins in our bodies. Uh, as, as mentioned before, think of it as the supports on a bridge. It works in that muscle cell to make sure everything is connected and working appropriately. When there is a mutation on this gene, it could lead to either a malformed dystrophin protein. It could lead to no dystrophin whatsoever. In fact, that happens a lot in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Uh, so the X-link of this is vital. The creation or correction of dystrophin mutations is vital because all of that can lead to better outcomes for these patients. With the X-link recessive inheritance of this defect, is that's why we're seeing it more prevalent in the male population? Absolutely, because when we go into the, the XY chromosomes that we've got in our bodies, uh, boys have XY, so it means they only have one copy of the X. So if that X has a little bit of weakness in it, which is the, where this mutation lives, that is all they've got. Uh, versus uh, females, they have two X's, one from mom, one from dad. And so because of the, first off, I'd like to back up a little bit, because of the X relation, uh, moms are the ones that will uh, pass this on to their children because they're passing on the X. Um, the father, not necessarily because when a boy gets something from his father, he's getting the Y chromosome. Okay, it definitely makes some sense. Um, you talked about the life of a young um, boy when you took us through the stage of life for that particular patient. Um, but can you kind of further enlighten us on the typical clinical signs and symptoms of DMD that you see early on in life? Absolutely. So the early signs that we see are a lot of times related to movement and growth, because that's what we're looking for when our uh, kids are growing up. And so we've been talking about the movement. They may get, uh, again, be a late walker in their lives or use their hands a lot uh, when they're walking around to go upstairs or to crawl around. Uh, they may not be able to run as long or as far as their uh, their peers can, or they may get tired a little more easily. A lot of times the signs are seen uh, first in the legs before the arms. Uh, and a lot of times you can see it in the like postural joints uh, before you see it in kind of the, ex the further extremities. Uh, you can also see a patient who has uh, delayed growth or short stature. So they're just, again, not growing as fast or equivalent to what their peers would be. That's physically what we're seeing. Getting inside the body a little bit more. Uh, we've talked about the labs, so the elevated uh, creatine kinase, which is a muscle uh, enzyme. So when the muscle gets damaged, it releases this. And so an elevation in this means there's damage going on with the muscle because that dystrophin is not holding everything together and keeping it safe. Uh, and then of course the elevated uh, liver enzymes as well. We also get concerns because where else do we have muscles besides just our arms and legs and helping us move? Muscles keep us alive as well because that is what helps us breathe. And that's what pumps 
our blood with, through the heart muscle. So cardiomyopathy is uh, oftentimes the biggest contributor to the fatality of this disease state. And uh, we can go into a few tests there if you're looking at an EKG. Typically, this has a very iconic uh, a change in the EKG at the R or the Q waves. And uh, these, these patients typically get symptomatic with the cardio symptoms in their teenage years uh, at about 18. Tell us a little bit about the burden of DMD from their perspective of motor function and other bodily system disorders and maybe even life expectancy. Yes, definitely. Just this is a disease state that we do not have a cure for. So it is considered something that will lead to early death. Uh, most patients will live to about 20, maybe into their 20s. The good news is with the treatments that we have now, we are looking at expected life, life into the 30s maybe getting into the 40s, data is still very early on that. But looking at kind of progression of this disease state, we talked about how diagnosis can happen around two to three years of age. By the time patients are 12 to 13, so we're looking at about 10 years after diagnosis, uh, they can be expected to be in a wheelchair. They just are not able to get around as, as well or as much as they could. Uh, the cardio symptoms, as mentioned before, is seen in kind of the late teen years. And of course, cardio, pulmonary, those are considered the uh, fatal areas of progression. So that's why they tend to get uncontrolled or to be a heavy burden on these patients towards the end of the life expectancy. Uh, we have talked, uh, haven't talked much about the pulmonary either. Uh, primarily, we're looking at the forced vital capacity. And by about 16 years of age, that capacity could go down to less than 50%. So we're starting to see a heavy burden in terms of their you know, wheelchair bound, they're starting to have cardio symptoms, they're starting to have pulmonary symptoms by the late uh, teen years. We also, it's, it's not necessarily uh, a tried and true thought, but cognitive and behavioral disorders could potentially be seen in this uh, population as well, not necessarily in the uh, uh, cognitive development side of things, but more on the could fall on the autism spectrum, or they could have ADHD or OCD or anxiety. Uh, that's something that can be seen in these patients. But the relation of that to Duchenne's, I still would uh, like to see a lot of a lot of more data on that one. Okay. So when we um, kind of move our attention to treatments or even general recommendations or standards uh, for this particular disease states, are there guidelines of care that pharmacists could or should discuss with their patients and caregivers of these patients? Oh my goodness. Yes. Thank you for that question. So pharmacists, when we're sitting down and we're starting those conversations with our patients of here is what we can do for your, your little boy. Here's what we need to watch for. And here's our treatment options. Number one is that it is going to take a team to help this little boy live to his best quality of life for the longest amount of time. 
So we want to make sure that he has the movement support that he needs. So potentially once movement gets more difficult, he could need physical therapy or activity is still promoted in these patients. Uh, the longer they can be active, the better for them. But we don't want them to run themselves out because that can actually lead to further damage to the muscles that can't necessarily be reversed. So finding that sweet spot of letting them be kids and letting them go out and have fun uh, but not doing it too much is vitally important. They still also very much need that nutritional support, especially since I'll be getting into the use of uh, glucocorticoids. Uh, Nutrition is going to be really big with that just because of the metabolic side effects that can come with chronic treatment like that. Um, patients will need to have cardiac support. In fact, there is some evidence showing that starting an ACE inhibitor around the age of 10 uh, is beneficial to helping these patients live a better quality of life for a little bit longer. And watching those pulmonary signs, making sure that they get the pulmonary support that they need. Uh, you know, Patients could end up being on ventilators or they could end up needing uh, tracheostomies. So just ensuring that they have the full body support that this disease state leads to. But in terms of goals of treatment, uh, again, we do not quite have a cure for this yet. I am always hopeful for science moving forward, and we're learning so much about this disease state, So, but we are not there yet. But what we can do is prolong the quality of life and the survival of the patient for as long as possible. And we do this through two mechanisms from a pharmacy standpoint, and that is through the corticosteroid use and the exon skipping technology. Okay. I believe the first and maybe even the last time that I was researching this condition was really only when corticosteroids were the mainstay of treatment. Um, you talked about, you know, the the two categories. We're going to definitely get into those of so those disease modifying treatments of corticosteroids and um, the new emerging exon skipping technologies of treatments. To me, the concept of exon skipping is fascinating, and I believe that it would be really helpful for the audience to understand why these two disease-modifying therapies are options in the disease process. So can you kind of do us all a favor and go more into detail for our audience on the corticosteroids and those exon skipping therapies? Absolutely. Happy to. You all know as pharmacists, that's kind of our jam. So let's get into it. So the corticosteroids, we do, that has been the mainstay of treatment and it is still considered the mainstay of treatment. Uh, We're predominantly looking at the use of prednisone um, orally. Usually that could be about 0.75 milligrams per kilograms per day. Uh, But We'll get into a little bit of the side effects of steroids later. We do have a max dose of that of 40 milligrams per day. But we also have another steroid that is specifically approved for Duchenne's, and that is uh, deflazacort. This is a uh, actually a corticosteroid prodrug for those of you who are a little bit of like the medication nerds. Um, it basically goes into the body and then the body turns it into a steroid. Uh, What are the benefits of that? Uh, Some of the benefits is we actually don't see as much of the weight gain 
that comes with steroids. And we're very familiar with the uh, complications for long-term weight gain and long-term steroid use. So that since this is a disease state where chronic steroid use is the mainstay, it's great to have an option like that. Uh, the dose of deflazacort is typically 0.9 milligrams per kilogram per day. And uh, it's uh, both of these are taken orally. Now, why are we using steroids? So it's actually one of those mechanisms. We're not 100% sure why it helps, uh, but the biggest thought process is that it is a... Uh, it's more because of its encompassing effects on the body. It just leads to you know, reduction in the inflammatory response. So less damage to the muscles happening when the damage, when the muscles are getting damaged and releasing those uh, creatine kinases, the immune system could see that as a problem, go in, cause inflammation, cause more damage. Uh, we also see that there's an improvement in pulmonary function when using the corticosteroids. There could be a risk of scoliosis. That's actually something I uh, meant to mention earlier. So scoliosis can be a risk because the muscles in the spine, again, are weaker, so they can't hold it in its nice human pattern that we have. Uh, so we see a reduction in that or they're able to just move longer. Their muscles just work a little bit better for longer. So steroids definitely are something to consider as early as the Duchenne's is diagnosed uh, because of these benefits. Uh, we want to go into some of the studies that have been done. Uh, we see that prednisone shows an increase in motor function specifically um, by 10 days. So after taking it for 10 days, we're already seeing uh, increase in strength in these patients. And then uh, it stabilizes at about six to 18 months after starting treatment where the patients kind of hit their max strength level and uh, ambulation. Uh, Deflazacort is the same. It basically stabilizes at about 13 months after they've after patients have been taking it. In terms of the risks for corticosteroids, we have mentioned that, and it's not a secret that taking these all the time is, is uh, kind of, we're playing with fire and that's where we start getting burned a little bit. So weight gain is a huge thing when taking steroids, just because it increases our whole metabolic system. So weight gain, not only is it not good because it just from the me metabolism side of things. Also considering these patients have weaker muscle systems that they can't get around as well, they get tired more easily. If they have more weight that they're carrying around, that can just keep perpetuating the issue. Uh, there can also potentially be some bone loss with these patients and actually fractures are a big risk due to falls because they, again, are not as stable. So if bones are getting weaker and they fall, they are at a higher risk of breaking their bones, which again, that complicates things because they can't move around as much and stay as active as they possibly can. There could be uh, endocrine side effects, uh, decrease in growth when these patients are already having uh less growth than their peers. So while steroids do wonderful things for these patients in terms of keeping them mobile, helping them live their best lives, it, it comes with some pretty big side effects after you've taken these for a while. With some of the risks and challenges of the corticosteroids, does it 
leave an opportunity for us to explore those exon skipping technologies? And if so, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about the efficacy and safety data on these newer technologies? Happy to, because these are where it's really exciting. So a lot of our guidelines, they kind of stop with the steroid use because that's what we have known the most. These uh, exon skipping medications are so new. In fact, the first one in the U.S. was approved in 2016. So very new treatment, and we are still waiting for the guidelines to show where these fall in. But if we want to step back a little back to that pathophysiology of what Duchenne's is doing and where steroids fall in along with these exons uh, skipping medications, steroids, uh, we're, we're going back to that bridge analogy where the, the supports are just either damaged or not there. The steroids are kind of like trying to reinforce the ends of the bridge. So we're doing, we're doing a benefit around the body. We're trying to protect the bridge, make sure maybe bones don't run into it if it's going over a river or something like that. Uh, but they're not really fixing the bridge. And so these exon skipping technology is going in and trying to fix what has been damaged, not all the way, but more kind of putting duct tape on the bridge is where we are at this point. So we have two sides of treating these patients. The steroids are to help minimize their symptoms from the disease state and maximize their ability to keep moving and keep being kids. And the exon skipping technology is trying to help delay the, the reduction of their muscles and help them keep the muscles that they are developing. And Jess, I think you've caught on now. I love stories. I love thinking of these pictures. It and so when I'm, when I'm thinking of exon skipping medications, I'm now going to move to to a more agricultural side of things. But think of having a field of apple trees. And, you know, you have some apple trees that create great apples. They're delicious, best things ever. And then you have some where they're, they're kind of weak. They're not great apples or it produces maybe one apple for the whole tree. So what this technology does is it is going in and trying to weed out the trees that are not creating good apples because these patients still have some genes that are creating potentially some dystrophin or maybe it is a very kind of ugly dystrophin <laughs> in a way. Um, so we're trying to go in, we're trying to protect whatever is making good apples, if there is any that the uh, patient has, and we're trying to kind of hide or take out those that are creating bad dystrophin or no dystrophin whatsoever. So that's something you could kind of picture when we're talking about these, because we're starting to get into a little bit of genetic talking, uh, which can be a lot of fun, but very specific language. So first, our very first treatment that we had come out in 2016 was Ediplerson. Uh, this is basically putting, uh, going into the gene, finding where the mutation is and covering it up so that it cannot lead to any more bad dystrophin or no dystrophin. The Ediplerson specifically looks at Exxon 51. So I think that'd be a good thing to remember, Exxon 51 there. Uh, it, we could think of it as Exxon 51, first one. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But as I said, basically what it does is it goes in, binds to exon 51 because the patient has a mutation there. And this leads to potentially more creation of the dystrophin protein. Uh, this is an infusion that the patient will get. Uh, it's provided once a week. So that is something to consider when we're talking about what us pharmacists really want to focus on. Uh, you know, these patients could be at risk of infusion site infections. So making sure that those are kept clean and fresh. And uh, of course, we're, we're working with little kiddos here. So <laughs> making sure uh, that they understand and are comfortable with the process as well. But once a week infusion, uh, when we're looking at the efficacy of this, uh, after about uh, 48 weeks, so we're getting close to about a year of treatment, uh, trials found that uh, dystrophin positive fibers, so basically muscles with dystrophin in them, increased uh, by 52%. So that is pretty impressive um, considering a lot of these patients can have no dystrophin. So an increase in dystrophin is such a positive sign and it means that we're starting to fix that bridge at the problem, which is the support is not there. And so we're adding support now. In terms of side effects for this medication, it is generally well tolerated too. That's that's kind of the beautiful thing with these uh, treatments is they do look like something that is in the body. So there's not as much side effects to it. Um, some things that have come up are uh, potentially contact dermatitis. You'll, you'll hear kind of the nausea, vomiting come up quite a bit. So just kind of those GI symptoms. Uh, and some patients felt like they or reported that they uh, felt some balance issues there as well. But again, generally well tolerated. The biggest consideration, as mentioned before, is this is a weekly infusion. You'll most likely be using catheters uh, with these patients. So we just want to make sure that those sites stay clean and that we monitor for infections as closely as possible. The next treatment we'll go over is uh, Goladirsin. So this treatment is the uh, same concept. It just targets the exon 53, uh, predominantly because this mutation can cover a great span of exons. I believe it's somewhere in the exon 40s all the way to the exons in the 50s. So the mutations can occur in uh, very precise areas. And so in this case, we're looking at exon 53. That's what this one focuses on. We uh, again are having a weekly infusion here. Uh, it also showed in its trials of increase in dystrophin. So again, we're adding supports to the bridge, positive things there. And this one also, the studies looked at uh, the clinical uh, benefits of it. So not only are we looking to see physiologically, is there more dystrophin, but are the patients showing a benefit from that? And so at three years after treatment, patients showed less loss of ambulation. So for instance, a patient who was on this medication had lost about 9% of their ambulation versus those who were on placebo had lost about a third of their ambulation by that time. So slowed the uh, reduction of ambulation. It uh, also uh, helped them not lose as much time on a measure that we use called the six minute walk time. 
So it's basically saying how far can patients walk in six minutes. And so patients who were on this medication lost about uh, 99 meters after six minutes. So wherever they started, let's say they they started at uh, 300 meters, you know, they cut down to 201 meters. Versus those who were not on the treatment, though, lost 181 meters. So basically cut that loss in half. So good effects there in terms of clinical signs as well for these treatments. This one, again, very well tolerated. Uh, we do want to watch, of course, for catheter infections. GI symptoms came up a bit uh, as, as the most common. Again, if any patients had symptoms, this is what they reported. Uh, some patients reported a headache. And uh, things to watch for with this one, they're rare, but if they come up, it's something to watch is uh, potential tachycardia, um, infections, pain, and uh, just kind of if the patient is complaining about anything, something to look into. Our next treatment is uh, Viltolarsen. This is a surprise, surprise, a once a week infusion. Um, and it also targets exon 53. So very similar to Goladearson that we had just previously mentioned. Uh, this one also increased the uh, dystrophin in its studies. It looked at by week 25. So again, not too much time on the treatment and we're seeing a good phys like physiological benefit. And uh, the functional tests, so the clinical response to this increase in dystrophin, uh, there were some benefits, but not necessarily statistically significant, but the studies didn't look too far into it. So this is one where these, again, these treatments are so new, it's just exciting to see what we find as time progresses. This one also a generally well tolerated, uh, just watch for those uh, infusion site reactions, GI pain, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, some patients reported fever, uh, but generally, I like to say, let us know if you feel like the patient is, is suffering from any side effects and we can triage along the way. The last treatment we'll talk about that is on the U.S. market is casimircin. This one, once a week, <laughs> infusion, and it targets exon 45. So we got a new target here. So kind of to back up a little, we're targeting exon 51, exon 53, and exon 45. That's what our treatments at least are looking for. This one also in the trials had an increase in dystrophin. It also is very is very well tolerated. Uh, we're just looking for the side effects as I've mentioned earlier. A lot of these kind of we're looking at in, in similar categories there. It does come with a uh, warning to watch for renal impairment, uh, primarily because it can reduce uh, uh, renal clearance. But this isn't something to, it's mainly something to just watch. It's not necessarily considered a contraindication. All right. Gosh, that's a good overview with all of them. Um, you know, and you talked about how they are with infusion administration, and it might not even really be a fair question to ask at this point, but do you know if there are any formulations that are in the pipeline for sub-Q or oral to kind of make it easier on the families? Absolutely. That's something we're always hoping for is uh, 
a variety. Honestly, I, I love to have a variety of different administration routes because that helps us match to what fits the patient better. So there are some treatments out there. So Adalirin is not available on the U.S. market yet. It is available in other countries, uh, but it is an oral treatment that can be used for Duchenne's. Now, it does have a slightly different mechanism of action. Um, one thing that about 10 to 15 percent of Duchenne patients in their genetics can have is basically a nonsense or a stop mutation. So it's basically not necessarily a mutation in not in developing poor or no dystrophin. It's basically saying just skip this whole paragraph when you're making making the proteins. So what this does is it tries to go in um correct that stop mutation which leads to uh an increase in the production of the dystrophin proteins. So it is oral. Um, right now, it looks to be given uh, three times a day. And uh, in phase two trials, it is showing an increase in dystrophin levels. And uh, another cool thing is, you know, we were talking a little bit about the, uh, the creatine kinase increasing in the blood because the muscles are getting damaged. So they're releasing their internal enzymes. Uh, it actually showed a decrease in serum levels of muscle enzymes. So that's pretty promising as well in that it's hopefully helping reduce the amount of muscle damage that occurs with movement and activity and, and internal processes. Because this is not released in the U.S. yet, we still are uh, in the in the phases of looking at trials. Not a lot of uh, in inside the U.S. treatment seen yet. Uh, so side effects are still kind of to be determined. Uh, what I'm seeing in trials that comes up most often is something I'm not surprised at, since it's an oral medication, and that is GI symptoms and vomiting. Uh, so that could be the biggest thing that we're looking at there but I'll be excited to see more results as this medication becomes available in the U.S. Yeah, that's, that'll be, you know, probably a game changer if we've got good outcomes with it as well. Um, what about some other investigational drugs that may be available? Oh, Jess, get ready mm -hmm. to get excited and nerd out just a little bit because this mechanism is a very interesting one in terms of the what we're doing. So there is a treatment out there. It's basically gene therapy. So what we're doing, and uh, it's it's a uh, trial name is SRP nine zero zero one. So this treatment, what we're doing is uh, something you think wouldn't we wouldn't really be fans of, which is what viruses do when they get in our system. You know, when we get infected by a virus. They basically get into our cells, get into our DNA, and then insert their DNA into ours so that we create more viruses. Well, what we're doing is trying to take something that uh, we don't really care for. <laughs> we don't really want viral infections, and so let's just not do that. But we're going to take that technology and see if we can create a basically friendly virus that then inserts genes that potential pa that patients are missing. So in terms of Duchenne's, we're hoping that this treatment will insert a good gene uh, for the dystrophin in the muscle. Therefore, almost, I, I 
basically would would very generally say kind of erasing the mutations for Duchenne's and giving the patient a correct copy of the gene and inserting it into their DNA. This is in very early trials in the US. Um, the phase one and phase two trials are expected to end in 2023. And they're hoping phase three trials will end in 2024. But kind of an interesting mechanism there. And it's it's something that gets us close to completely rebuilding that bridge to where it is a fully functional bridge. And my hope would be seeing patient quality of life increasing even more from that. Well, that was pretty comprehensive with all of the therapies that are coming and definitely available to our patients. But when looking at all of these therapies that we could use or possibly, you know, could use, where are corticosteroids typically introduced and when is exon skipping agents considered? Is there a stepwise approach to starting or stopping these agents? Fantastic question. Yes, because we have all these toys. When do we use them? Uh, so glutico or glutocorticoids are recommended to be started basically as soon as Duchenne's is diagnosed, um, mainly because of the physiological benefits and just prolonging of uh, the patient's quality of life in that aspect. In terms of the exon skipping treatments, uh, official guidelines haven't quite been fully updated to say where in practice that falls in, but we always like to consider, you know, the glucocorticoids are just, you know, keeping the bridge attached to the land masses and trying to keep it there. The exon skipping is trying to go ahead and fix as best we can the bridge. So we're kind of two in two hands trying to help these patients through two different mechanisms. So to increase the dystrophin in a patient can increase their clinical outcomes and the benefit of those clinical outcomes. All right. And then with where our options lie, how often and maybe even in what clinical settings would pharmacists come in contact with these agents? And then I guess even, I don't know, for instance, like where are these therapies normally infused? What specialty area? Kind of give us a little bit of the lowdown there. So typically where we see these patients is with specialists. So either a pediatrician that is specialized in Duchenne's, uh, or we also see it with a pediatric neurologist as well. It, it is not a condition of the nerves, but it is a movement disorder. So oftentimes is treated uh, with patients who have similar movement disorders. For the infusions, we do typically uh, see these started in an infusion center and really want to uh, closely monitor these patients again because we want to make sure those infusion sites are clean. We want to make sure that they are well tolerating these medications. What are some of the considerations for pharmacists who are counseling patients or caregivers about using the exon skipping technology? Yeah, so again, when we're having our counsel sessions with patients where uh, as a pharmacist, it's always good to still touch base and make sure that they have the support for the, the other symptoms that the patient could have. So once the patient starts getting pretty severe movement uh, barriers, you know, have they been uh, connected with a physical therapist or an occupational therapist to make sure all of that support is there? Uh, are they... Do they have 
lined up a cardiologist and pulmonologist to keep an eye on those and making sure that the patient has good nutrition, just supporting our patient provider or patients and our provider partners in light of that. Uh, and then getting into the medications themselves, it can be really scary to think that you are going to be given your, your little boy an infusion all the time. So reinforcing that overall, these medications are well tolerated. Uh, keep an eye on the patient, report to us anything that looks concerning. But uh, for the most part, this should be a medication that just helps the patient, not necessarily harms the patient. And then of course, uh, reinforcing the uh, the monitoring of the infusion site to make sure that that doesn't get infected or uh, or doesn't deteriorate and we might need to look at another infusion site. Amanda, I um, definitely want to thank you for being with us today and bringing such an interesting topic to our pharmacy podcast to share with our listeners. Um, you know, knowing this rare disease without a cure has some options that can improve quality of life. What would you say is a single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? I think the biggest takeaway is that exciting things are happening and exciting things are coming. Uh, we can now, again, have a two-handed approach in supporting these patients, not only from the glucocorticoids in maintaining and uh, promoting good mobility and good outcomes, but treatments that are going in and really trying to fix uh, what's causing the Duchenne's. And there's just more to come as well as we learn more about this disease state. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, I would like to thank PTCE Pharmacy Connect for hosting this podcast. I think sharing this type of information can be valuable for our pharmacists and those that may serve these patients or caregivers. Um, knowing that a patient's life expectancy is into the second or third decade of life, I think providing you know, the patient with a good quality of life can be comforting for caregivers and healthcare providers. So I hope many of you will extend your education on this topic by completing the continuing education portion of this podcast, but also staying abreast to follow these exon skipping therapies and how they can assist patients being affected by DMD. So Todd, I'd like to go ahead and handle the rest of this back over to you and I'll let you close out. What a great conversation, uh, Jessica and Amanda. Thank you so much for your insights in digging into such a complex treatment. I get excited when I listen to the two pharmacists uh, speak today on this subject and many of the subjects and rare diseases that PTCE Pharmacy Connect has uh, centralized and concentrated on. This is, this is testimony that our pharmacists are part of continuing to improve treatment programs. And I am proud of what our pharmacists have done. Thank you to all the pharmacists listening in right now. If there's anything that PTCE Pharmacy Connect can ever address for you, please reach out to our PTCE team and or the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We absolutely um, would love to hear from you. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.